listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Pandemic Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina. Same as last week and the week before and several, many weeks before that. Uh, Not on the campus of East Carolina University, where I normally would be, and not speaking for the university, which I normally wouldn't do. But speaking just for myself and my guest, I know we'll do the same here. I hope you also are staying home as I am and uh, staying safe, avoiding crowds and wearing masks and doing all the important things we have to do here in February 2021 as we wait for the vaccines to take effect and the pandemic to diminish. Uh, My wife Emily and I have been discussing our annual Super Bowl party, which uh, next Sunday is the Super Bowl, I believe. Longtime listeners may recall that when my daughters were younger, they annually played in the Beast of the East Youth Soccer Tournament, which always seemed to get scheduled for Super Bowl weekend. But now that they're grown, we're free to entertain in our own favorite way, uh, which we're, we're planning to do. It's the same one we use for our annual New Year's Eve party, where we make all our favorite hors d'oeuvres, party foods, meatballs, dips, deviled eggs, everything we really enjoy. And then the two of us sit down in front of the TV and we eat them. No external guests to listen to their boring stories, uh, to entertain. It, it's just a delight. We love it. We are pretty sure that it is a pandemic-safe formula, and we'll be able to do that again this year, too. So, looking forward to it. Uh, And in even better news regarding uh, the pandemic, I'm thrilled to say that uh, M got her shot this week. She has been teaching face-to-face since September. It has been a real strain on her nerves and on mine, knowing how much contact she's been having with uh, high school kids who whose hygiene is not always of the top quality, even in the best of times. Um, They say uh, the main side effect of the shot is the inability to stop telling people about it once you get it. And apparently I'm experiencing that on her behalf and and telling you that tonight. She's much better at it. She did not put a picture of herself on Facebook or do any of those things. I have not gotten the shot. I'm teaching from uh, home, so I'm not a high enough priority at this point. And we are well into the new semester here in uh, uh, the spring semester of, of 2021. And I've been trying to improve my online teaching. I'm sure anyone listening who teaches has been doing that as well. Uh, the number one fact that I've learned, and this is not always clear to people outside the field, is that online teaching is much more time-consuming than face-to-face teaching. The wishful thinking that this would be a way to save money, fire a bunch of professors, just have one person teach a million students online at a time, it, it doesn't work that way. And even regardless of the number of students, for example, if I'm preparing a lecture 
in a normal year, I would write one or more likely update an old one, which would take a few hours. But the class would come along, 11 a.m. Tuesday, time to give the lecture. I would go and give it, whatever state it's in, and 75 minutes later, I'm done. Now, if the lecture is, there's two lectures a week or three a week or whatever the class is calling for, I start writing it and revising it, write it, revise it, write it, revise it, keep going, record it in batches of 15-minute segments so they don't have to listen to an hour straight. And I can spend all week working on on the lecture because there's no time when it has to be in. Plus, there's re-recording it, plus there's the... uh, fussing when you're actually recording it with technology. So a 75-minute lecture takes a lot longer than 75 minutes uh, to record as opposed to giving it. You can't use body language. You can't always use facial expression. Uh, If I have a coughing fit or something, I have to pause and go back and re-record that part because it's just not good to leave that on, on audio and in a classroom, if you cough, you know, you move on. There you go. So it ends up taking a lot longer, all these little bits. I don't mind it. I actually enjoy sometimes the results, uh, but it is time-consuming. And uh, one other thing about it is I found some people think, well, once you've recorded your course, you're done. Just hit play next year and play it again. Uh I think that is really irresponsible. I, I don't do that. I have taught courses more than once. And when I do that, I don't uh, just play the old ones because I'll make a side comment about some current event and then you play it again six months from now and that sounds out of date or I'll have learned something new by then, hopefully every time. Uh, I, I regard that as, as verging on malpractice to play the same course over Maybe once, but certainly not more than that. I had a colleague who recently retired partly because he complained the switch from one learning system to another, from Blackboard to Canvas, meant he would have to re-record all his five-year-old lectures. Like, seriously? You're not doing that anyway? Uh, what's the phrase? Get, get me the world's smallest violin to play in sympathy for you. Anyway, let's move on. We've got Good shows coming up, as always, on Civil War Talk Radio. Next week, it's Lincoln Week. February 10th is close enough to February 12th, Lincoln's birthday. We'll have a special Lincoln show featuring two guests. This is something new on the show. Uh, Shannon Brown will be here to talk about the Lincoln Funeral Train Project. And Raynette Chilton will be here to talk about Lincoln's coat. She's written a book called Lincoln's Great Coat, The Unlikely Odyssey of a Presidential Relic. Not the kind of thing we normally see. So we'll have both of them on sequentially and talk with them on the 10th. Brian Taylor will be with us next week, fighting for citizenship, black northerners, and the debate over military service in the Civil War. And to round out the month of February 2021, Cynthia Nicoletti and her relatively new book, Secession on Trial, The Treason Prosecution of Jefferson Davis. Can you prosecute an ex-president? Relevant? We'll find out. You can always find out who's going to be on the show by going to www.impedimentsofwar.org or the Facebook page of the same name where Mark Gaffney tells us who's coming up next. And you can also donate to the Civil War book and libation fund there 
book in whatever I want it to be fund. It's not tax deductible. Don't try to get away with that. Uh, well, tonight's guest is here to talk to us about the people from Iowa who joined the other side in the Civil War. The book is called Iowa Confederates in the Civil War. The author is David Conan. David, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hi, Jerry. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for, for joining me. I enjoyed corresponding with you this week. We got to meet online, and now we get to meet voice to voice, at least. So, uh, appreciate you coming here. This um, this book is not um, what am I trying to say? It's not a university press book. I'm looking for the publisher. Um, no, uh, Fonto, but it, it, Fonto Media. Go ahead. Font Hill Media, Hill. you're right, it's not a university press book. So uh, that suggests that you have an actual uh, day job of some kind besides teaching uh, uh, that you can do when you're not writing books like this. Is that true? Um, generally speaking, yes. Um, right now I'm kind of, um, I'm kind of between jobs, but um, I've taken some time off. I had a mild concussion, but I'm, I'm much, much better. Oh, dear. I'm, I'm sorry to hear that and hope you recover fully and, and quickly. Yes, thank um, you. I'm feeling, feeling and, very good. Good. Well, then, then back in the saddle, whatever you're doing, hope it's soon. Well, let me uh, ask, the first question comes to mind with Iowa Confederates is, uh, what would bring you to this topic? Uh, the guess would be that you have a connection with Iowa. Yes, um, I'm married in Iowa, gal, Illinois native, moved to Iowa um, in 2000, and um, I have two ancestors who were Union veterans, so no Confederate ancestry, but um, we moved outside of a town of the town of Grinnell, where Grinnell College is located, and um, I had, I, I I studied the Grinnell Station of the Underground Railroad for about six years. It was fascinating. And then, um, I, then I stumbled upon a very unusual fact. Um, in the summer of 1864, Iowa was going to have its first draft. And um, the men drafted were supposed to report for duty uh, to Grinnell on uh, September 30th. And... Um, or actually October 1st, and uh, when three of the men didn't report for duty, the provost marshal in Grinnell sent two deputy marshals down to southern Powashee County, where it's located, and uh, to round up the draft deserters. Bushwhackers murdered the two deputy marshals. And that made me ask for the very first time, is it, is it possible that some Iowans actually serve the Confederacy? I, I thought it was impossible because Iowa was such a strong pro-Union st- state with a very proud record. But um, the more that I dug, the more I found out, yes, it was true. And I, I documented 76 men who did that very thing. So that is really a remarkable story, the story of the murder of the marshals who were retreating the daft, draft dodgers. And I can mm-hmm. see why that would, would get anyone's attention um mm-hmm. so the uh 76 um 
uh, that seems like it cuts both ways. On the one hand, I wouldn't expect to find that large a number. On the other hand, uh, how many out of how many Iowa soldiers are we looking here? Okay, uh, um, there were approximately seventy six thousand five hundred Iowa Union soldiers, and mm-hmm. um, some of them had uh, had reenlisted. Or maybe there was some bounty jumping going on with a few individuals, uh, but that's that's a pretty rough number. So the 76 Iowa residents that I documented represented basically one Iowan who served the Confederacy for 1,000 who served the Union. So the, I guess it's worth putting the $64 question on the line right up up front. We're looking at one tenth of one percent, um, yeah. or a hundredth of a percent. Uh, actually, yes. one out of a hundred, one out of a thousand. Yeah, one one tenth of a percent. Uh, yes. So, is this a significant project in that sense, or is it just you know such a, a, a an outlier that it's it, it's sort of a curiosity? How, how do you well, see that? I see it actually as. Um, I see it as more than just a curiosity uh, because this allows a person to take a fresh look at Iowa during the Civil War and Iowa during wartime. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead of thinking that, oh, everybody was just in favor of the war and it was all hunky-dory and everybody was supporting um, President Lincoln and the Republican Party, um, this actually... The two stories of Iowa in wartime and the stories of these men, many of whom left uh, families back in Iowa, uh, and, and by the way, one-fourth of these Iowa Confederates had a divided family with at least one brother or, or a son who served the Union Army. Hmm. Um, so there were, this, this actually, I think, raises some interesting questions for Iowa, which was not a border state. Um, mm-hmm. to have any any residents at all serve the Confederacy. It's I, I guess it's a border state of a border state because it, it borders yeah. on Missouri. That's right. Uh, That's right. Which is a slave state. So, yeah. so even though Missouri stays in the Union, it is. It, it's not as if this was Vermont or something where oh, I'm guessing right. the percentage who yeah. serve the Confederacy is probably lower. But yeah. what an interesting thought then that these. I mean, when you put it that way, that it's not just a curiosity. If you said, um, you know, during the Vietnam War, 75 Iowans went to fight for the North Vietnamese, that'd be pretty shocking. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so the fact that it's a small number doesn't doesn't reduce its impact in that sense. Right. That's very interesting. That's right. Um, and it was, it was very shocking. Um, and... And Republicans, uh, Republican-led um, newspapers made great hay out of this as a way to, um, to demonize Iowa Democrats, even Iowa Peace Democrats. When it came time for elections, then all of a sudden they were all scooped into one bag of being disloyal, traitorous Democrats. Well, the... Uh, the... the uh tendency many of us have to look back at the past and say, oh, politics were so much better, Lincoln-Douglas debates, they, they argued issues instead of just calling names. Yeah. Uh, 
but in fact, there's a lot of name calling, a lot of uh, yeah. uh, low tricks going on in politics in the 1860s. That yeah. brings up the idea of what what the politics were like in Iowa. So we're going to take a short break and come back, and I want to ask you about the the political complexion of the state before and leading sure. into the war. So we'll come back and do that in just a minute. We're talking tonight with David Conan. He is the author of Iowa Confederates in the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access all the time. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice of America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with David Conan, author of Iowa Confederates in the Civil War. We've been discussing the fact that there were some 76 uh recorded cases of men from Iowa leaving the state and fighting for the Confederacy, which, while it's only a tenth of a percent compared to the number of soldiers who fought for the Union, is still uh, not an insignificant number of people who not only favor the other side, but actually uh, put their lives on the line to fight against uh, the country that their state belongs to. It, It really is quite remarkable. So, David, I wanted to ask you about the the complexion of the state. Was it divided politically much before the Civil War? Yes, it was very much divided politically. Um, um, control of the state was was flip flopping back and forth between. It was primarily Democratic first, uh, and then and then the Whigs had control for a while, and then the Republican Party shot up. Uh, like a rocket, and um, there was Abraham Lincoln won uh, won the majority of votes in Iowa, 
but there were some significant pockets of Democrats across the state, a pretty sizable number of Iowans. Well, the uh, the Midwestern states, uh, you know, the neighboring state of Illinois and then Indiana next in line uh, to the east, were were Democratic. I'm sorry, were Republican in the 1860 election, mm-hmm. but they were also filled with, uh, as you say, strong pockets of Democratic sentiment and very yeah. widespread anti-African American sentiment. These were not. Yes. yes. Uh, go ahead. I, I, I think most historians, Iowa historians, would agree that um, white supremacy was the norm uh, across Iowans uh, before the Civil War and during the Civil War. Um, the exception was people who were abolitionists who went beyond the baseline of just being against slavery, wanting slavery to end, but there were some men like Josiah Bushnell Grinnell, who um, the town of Grinnell was named after, he was, he believed that that all people are created in God's image and deserve uh, equal rights and respect. And um, he was considered a radical in the state for his views, things that today are just normal. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, in describing the, the democratic influence within the state, one character who comes up repeatedly throughout your book is uh, George Wallace Jones. Yes. Can you tell us about him? He was, um, he was a native of Indiana, but culturally speaking, he was a Southerner, raised in a slave-owning household. He was a lifelong friend of Jefferson Davis. They went to school together at Transylvania University in Kentucky. And George Wallace Jones, um, he actually... Uh, brought slaves with him uh, to Dubuque. In Dubuque County in the 1840 census, he was the largest slave owner holding three human beings in bondage at the time when Iowa was still a territory. Uh, But then George Wallace Jones became one of Iowa's first U.S. senators. And um, so you have a former slave owner who's a friend of Jefferson Davis who had two sons that ended up entering the Confederate service. Um, and beyond that, uh, there was a big stink that, that, that blew up. Um, George Wallace Jones, uh, he was still, he was uh, pushing for pro-slavery actions in the U.S. Senate, and more and more Iowans disagreed. They didn't like that. So he was not reelected. And um, his friend... President Buchanan appointed George Wallace Jones to be minister to uh, to Bogota in in South Carolina in South America rather. Mm-hmm. And while he was there, um, the Civil War started, unbeknownst to George Wallace Jones, because he was very far away and not in touch with all, all. He didn't have any telegraph, and it took a long time to get get newspapers. Well, he wrote a letter to his friend, Jefferson Davis, and um, part of the letter was saying, this is a a united country, and I'm all for the Union, and the other part of the letter was interpreted to read, um, I'm in favor of of rebellion, although he didn't know that the war had started. So, uh, unbeknownst to them, the 
Secretary of State, William Seward, had intercepted Jones's correspondence, and uh, they recalled Jones to Washington. He's a Democrat, so they recalled him, replaced him with a Republican. Um, shortly after Jones arrived in Washington, he left for, to, for New York City. He was arrested on the order of William H. Seward and thrown into prison without charges, um, without any charges filed. And for, he ended up in prison for two months, basically, until he was released. And, um, and then Seward... So, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I have to say, Seward, when, it, when uh, Jones came back to Washington, Seward entertained him. I mean, they... they yes, absolutely. Uh, they, Jones actually considered him, him a friend. Um, <laughs> he said, we're brother senators. And he, he entertained Jones and, and threw a great dinner and, and said, here, let me, let me take you to introduce you to Abraham Lincoln, who Jones actually had met years ago when he was younger, but they had a great time. And uh, so Jones was shocked when he was arrested, and he appealed to Abraham Lincoln saying, there must be some mistake. Somebody, somebody just is really, really confused here. And Lincoln was silent, and Seward was silent, and um, his family was frantic. Jones's family was frantic. Well, anyway, the day that he was uh, the day that he was arrested, or the next day, Seward released to the press news of the arrest, and um, and from that point on, throughout the war, the Union press, especially in Iowa, but throughout much of the North, was. Um, well, he they, they they seized upon Jones as as kind of the, a, a byword for somebody who's traitorous, who's deceitful, who's a friend of Jefferson Davis, and has sons in the Confederate Army. And so you could just say George Wallace Jones say those words in Iowa, and all of a sudden it represented everything that they said was wrong with the Iowa Democratic Party. To push on that a little bit, though, it is was that not entirely inaccurate? Because he did have sons in the Confederate Army, and he did sympathize with Davis and the rebellion. Um, I mean, I, I kind of found that as a thread through a number of the stories yeah. that, especially the first chapter where you described the, the tension between Republicans and Democrats throughout the war, yeah. uh, that the there's a sense on the one hand that, that Lincoln is going pretty far in suspending habeas corpus and people are being arrested without being charged. On the other hand, as, as, you, as you started out this evening pointing out, you've got Democrats murdering federal marshals who are trying right. to enforce the draft. So it's, right. it seems like there's a lot of mud on both hands here. That's, that's a very good question and um, a very good point. Um, on the surface, I understand what you're saying, but if you look a little mm -hmm. bit deeper, when George Wallace Jones was released from prison, he wrote a letter to the editor of, of at least one newspaper in Iowa, and he said, um, he said that he actually did not, did not uh, want the country to be at war. He, he, he actually, mm -hmm. in the same letter, he wrote about how horrible the Civil War was down in the South American country that he was. He was trying to kind of mediate between two warring sides, and he knew how horrible it was. And um, so he was trying to say, listen, I'm, 
I'm loyal. I'm for the union. Um, and, um, uh, and, and, it, and, and just, and by the way, before in the 1860 election, he was a very bitter enemy of, of, of Douglas, Stephen A. Douglas. And he said, he, he wrote to somebody that Abraham Lincoln would be a better candidate than, than Stephen A. Douglas. And then after a few years later, when, after Lincoln was assassinated, he publicly said, you know, this is a, this is a tragic, horrible thing, that, that our country lost Abraham Lincoln. Um, and years later, he had said Abraham Lincoln was a very uh, strong president. He is a good president. Well, the, the, as you point out, Jones himself was you know, culturally Southern, at Southern roots. Yeah, yeah. And that, that was true of a number of the people that you describe here. Uh, yeah. Is that the main reason why most of these 76 Iowa men fought for the South? Or what, what other reasons did, would make someone turn his back on his state in this that way? That is a great question. Um, the, the data and the stories, all the facts that I've gathered, indicate that the largest motive was, um, was opportunism. Uh, often related to earning a living with little regard for principles or consequences. In order to understand that a little bit better for context, I'd like mm-hmm. to step back and say that um, during the financial panic of 1857, um, it's something that, that hit the North hard, but it hit Iowa especially hard. And in Iowa, the longer the time went on, the harder times became in Iowa financially. It was like a Charlie Brown cartoon where you have a, a rain cloud above someone's yes. head and it's just dumping rain and it won't leave. It was like that in Iowa. And so um, many future Iowa Confederates left Iowa and they went to the sunny south, which had rebounded rather quickly, to get jobs. Mm-hmm. And once they were south on the chessboard, they were introduced to all kinds of Southern influences and Southern, Southern girlfriends and Southern bosses and friends and newspapers and all the rest of it. And so when the war broke out, these same men, they still needed a job. Mm-hmm. And so um, a number of them, they, they enlisted. You give the example, I think James Williams, uh, who moved south in 1858 and immediately finds a woman, falls in love, gets married, and starts writing home about how slavery is really, really not so bad. It's really great. And his mother writes back, says, I'm sure it's not so bad if you own one, but what yeah, about, yeah, how right. do you think they feel about it? Uh, she right. has not lost her perspective, but, but he's totally that's gone right. yeah. gone into it. That's right. That's right. Um, that is true. So uh, that re- leads to... Um, well, the smallest category that, that of the three large categories, another one is philosophical, and that is uh, mm-hmm. about a third of the Iowa Confederates, they, they had, their motive was, philosophical motive involved states' rights related to slavery and or an interpretation of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Mm-hmm. In the middle of it, uh, almost 
not sure what percentage. Uh, let's see, in the middle of it, there was a, a, another motive of familial concerns, often related to loyalty to one's birthplace or the birthplace of one's father or mother, um, if not specific family expectations. So when you mention birthplace, then the sample 76 you're talking about, they're not all born in Iowa. I mean, no, Iowa's a new no. enough territory, there wouldn't be that many people born there. Right, uh, that's right. Um, but interestingly, one there was one Iowa native who, um, who, believe it or not, he is listed on the Confederate honor roll. That's the Confederacy's highest designation of valor in battle. Mm-hmm. And so there was one Iowa native who received that from the Confederacy, whereas there were there were many Iowans who received the Medal of uh, the Medal of Honor um, from Congress. So the um, in, in talking about then then if you're not necessarily born in Iowa, what was what? How did you define the sample? What qualified someone to be an Iowa man? Okay. Uh, that is a great question. I knew that um, I knew that this would be important. Um, I defined an Iowa resident as someone who had lived in Iowa um, no earlier than 1850 for at least two years, and who is at least 13 years or older. I'm I'm I misspoke. Mm-hmm. No earlier than 1850, he lived in Iowa. So before 1850, when it was still a territory, it didn't count. So 1850 or later, for at least two years, needed to be 13 years old or older during those two years of residency. So just a transient who passes through for six months or someone who lived there as a child, you're not counting that? No, no. Okay. Um, I thought two years would be the age of 13, and two years, it seemed like, that was a reasonable beginning point of time, a reasonable amount of time and age for someone to begin to identify with a specific location and even a specific state. It does make sense. It's interesting, the, the whole question of state loyalty. I was trying to wrap my thoughts around the idea of people who say they support states' rights but mm-hmm. at, they also wish to choose which states, which states' rights they are going to support. That is, mm-hmm. if 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 you, it's one thing to be to be born in Virginia and say I cannot raise my sword against my native state. Yeah. Um, you know, I can see an emotional pull there. Yeah. But to say, well, philosophically, this is my native state, but forget them. I'm going fight for someone else because I like their politics better. Um, it, 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 it was a little more of a stretch uh, uh, emotionally for me to, to comprehend why these people were doing this. Uh, if I were to, to put it in a harsher way, they're not only betraying their country, they're also betraying their state uh, yeah. to do this. So... Well, let's pause there. Um, 
<laughs> we'll both collect our thoughts because this book was very really did make me think quite a bit about this situation. The book is called Iowa Confederates in the Civil War. The author is David Conan. He's our guest tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and we'll be back in just a few moments. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with David Conan, author of Iowa Confederates in the Civil War. We've been talking about what would make someone from a state that remained in the Union and was not a slave state uh, decide not only to sympathize politically with the rebellion, but actually travel south and take up arms on its behalf. Uh, David, as, as I was reading this book, I'll just I'll say frankly, I found I didn't like a lot of these characters very much. I thought there was a lot of uh, Democrats whining about freedom of speech, which mm-hmm. they wish to use to undermine the government, mm-hmm. uh, or, and and you know, and, and then uh, complaining about the Republicans are taking up arms, but then there's a hundred armed men at a protest, or there are rumors of the Knights of the Golden Circle, which scholars differ on how real that was. But rather, rather than pursue that, I'm just going to lay that out there, that I, I like the book better than I liked a lot of the people in it. Uh, <laughs> okay. But there were some sure. people I did like in it, so I just want to ask you about that. You, you, have, you tell personal stories of all the soldiers that you've researched, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I'm guessing you must have a favorite or two among them. Uh, yeah. Is, tell us about that. One of my favorites was um, a Virginia native, James H. Williams, who became an Iowa state legislator. He was also he was also a lawyer. 
he was expecting and, and on his way to a very prosperous career in Dubuque, in a Democratic stronghold in eastern Iowa. And um, he expected he would make his, his life there. And then the war broke out, and he, um, uh, he was called out by local Republicans and uh, put on the spot, are you going to support um, all these things that Lincoln is doing and, and so forth and so on. And um, he, he single-handedly tried, tried to uh, derail Iowa's entrance into the Union war effort, but he failed, of course. He was the David trying to fight against Goliath. He failed uh, in this case, and um, he went back to Virginia. Well, that's where the story gets even more interesting. He made, meets um, a lovely Southern belle, and uh, he enters the Confederate service in a very untraditional way. He is an Army recruiter who adds to that his responsibilities as a quartermaster and a lieutenant of an artillery unit, but these, these responsibilities allowed him plenty of time, periodically, to leave his unit and um, visit his family in Virginia and spend time with the beautiful Cora. I thought that was really interesting. And then, and then the war became deadly serious for James H. Williams, and, uh, and also his relationship was, with Cora was strained, and um, they had their ups and downs. So I was very interested in the fact that uh, through their, their correspondence that I had was able to locate and have access to, mm-hmm. it's a story of their romance as well as James's own evolution as a soldier and as a man. Um, so I, I thought that was very interesting. Well, I, I shared that. I have that noted here. That was my favorite story in the book as well. Really? Uh, the, the, the relationship of James and Cora, uh, up and down. And after the war, he joins uh, Billy Mahone in the, the readjuster party in yes. Virginia, which yes. is a sort of populist movement, but a, a biracial one. Uh, yes. And that yeah, cr- kind of redeems right. him in modern eyes a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and who knows where that could have taken, what good could have come out of that if it hadn't been for that race ride in Danville that mm-hmm. just, just brought the, the party down. Right. Now, by race riot, though, that I assume that's white violence against African Americans. I would assume uh, that's right. I don't know. I haven't studied it. Right. That that that's one of those things with my students in the 21st century. If if you just use the phrase race riot, people think mm-hmm. of Watts yeah. or uh, um, yeah, you know, more recent violence in uh, uh, in Missouri or other places, street violence. Sure. That's often. It, it, but race riots in the 19th century are, are always initiated by the white majority attacking the white minority. So I'm guessing right. that's what happened in Danville, but we can both look it up. Um, yeah. Another story that I found interesting was that of uh, Junius Hempstead, oh, the, yeah. uh, the, the governor's son. Uh, yeah. uh, how did he yeah. get involved in this? Well, when he was, he was a gifted artist, and he wanted, uh, he wanted to go to Europe on somebody else's tab to study art. But his, his father, who was one of Iowa's governors, earlier governors, said, no, 
No, I want you to get a good civil and military education. Let's get you into West Point. Well, West Point was was closed. They had filled up their enlist their their enrollment. So the next best choice was um, the Virginia Military Institute. So let's send you down there, Junius. And he entered nine months before Fort Sumter. His dad, the former governor, apparently didn't know that the new new cadets at VMI had to swear allegiance to defend Virginia against all of her enemies. And so when the war broke out, Junius, um, he, he, he enlisted with the other cadets, and he became a Confederate soldier, rose up the ranks to become an officer, uh, was wounded a couple of times, second time was in the Battle of the Wilderness, was captured, and he began a, a treacherous trek as a prisoner of war and became one of the immortal 600 who was suffering unbelievable agony as a prisoner of war. Um, all the while, uh, his parents were, had learned of his captivity and were becoming increasingly frantic. And they began ramping up efforts to pull whatever strings they could to try and free their son. The problem was, Junius was a very scrupled young man, and he, he, he went so far as to write President Lincoln, saying, President Lincoln, here's my moral dilemma. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Um, listen, I, I, please set me free. I'm homesick. I want to go home. I'll keep my nose clean. But my problem is, I swore an oath to defend Virginia, and if I, if I swear the oath of allegiance to the United States, I will be breaking my word. And so can you please just free me and, and send me home? Well, Lincoln was assassinated before he could actually rule on this, but one of his secretaries had let his parents know, you know, if, it, if he had lived, he would have freed your son. Well, and I'm sure a lot of listeners caught the reference to the the immortal 600 were the prisoners of war held outside of Charleston, yes. who were being uh, you know held in an open position under Confederate artillery fire. That's uh, right. Essentially, as hostages because the yeah. the North felt that the Southern forces in Charleston were doing the same thing to their prisoners, yeah. so they... That's right. Uh, it was, things were getting ugly by that time in the war. There's one other person I definitely wanted to ask you about while we're talking, um, uh, Dr. Farner. Uh, oh, yeah. Doc, uh, Dr. William Farner. If I have it right, he's a liberty and free soil person mm-hmm. who ends up buying a bunch of slaves. Uh, take us through his odyssey. <laughs> Yes, um, he is. He was a very fascinating man. Um, he was a gifted, uh, a gifted doctor. He was a gifted newspaper man, and apparently quite a smooth talker, uh, very persuasive. Um, so he started. He um, he went from editing pa- a paper in the early. I guess you, not sure if it's free soil movement, but then. Um, then he was working for the Democrats, and then he was, um, he ended up in Colorado, he left Iowa, and um, he, was, he was treating 
Union soldiers examining them who were entering a Colorado unit. This is in the early days of the war. Mm-hmm. And then he left Colorado. He wrote some, some uh, inflammatory letter, and he, he, he lit out for Texas, and he joined a Confederate unit, uh, one of Silby's regiments, as a doctor. Um, and while he was in Texas, um, uh, there, was, uh, there was an awful yellow fever, I think the yellow fever epidemic that occurred off of Galveston, and he bravely uh, put himself out on the line like other doctors to treat Galvestonians, and um, many doctors died during that, but he didn't. After the war, he ends up, oh, and by the way, during the war while he was in Texas, you're right, he bought a lot of slaves and had them refugeed out into rural Texas away from the, the freeing hands of the Union Army. So he was a slave owner. Mm-hmm. But after the war, he was able to talk his way using his former Republican and Free Soil uh, credentials. He got, he got a position on the Freedmen's Bureau <laughs> in Texas. But then he apparently, he was, he apparently abused some freedmen, and they, they fired him. <laughs> so he was going back and forth. Just He seemed to be very opportunistic. Absolutely. I guess that's a thread that runs through all uh, or a lot of these stories, that people are doing what may seem the best thing at the moment, uh, yeah. but often changing their, their positions. Uh, in the appendix, you give some statistics. You say some of these are surprising, uh, yeah. In all the research you did, what was the most surprising thing you found? Well, I was, I was surprised, um, I mentioned this before, but that mm-hmm. one out of every four um, Iowa Confederates had a divided family. But also, you know what, now that you mention it, the other thing that really surprised me was this. The number of Iowa Confederates who returned to Iowa after the war and... Mm-hmm. Um, Fifteen percent of Iowa Confederates actually came back to Iowa and, and lived there the rest of their lives. That that surprised me. So they were reaccepted by their communities. That's a great question. I haven't gotten an answer to that. My my guess is that they moved to communities that had a high percentage of former peace Democrats. Right. Who would have some some level of tolerance, some level of sympathy for a poor soul like himself? Uh, you do mention one example of, of someone who donates land, I think, for a cemetery. Yes. Yeah. Uh, thinking that they'll name it after him, but when the time yeah. comes, they go, "Oh no, you you went Confederate during the war. We're not naming anything for you." That's right. Uh, That's right. So so these these feelings run deep and they they last a long time. They sure uh, did. And although not forever. Go ahead. No, not forever. Um, they seem to especially come, they came, they came to the surface in a public way during elections and during mm-hmm. campaigns where Republicans were typically, for, for decades, a few decades, were able to wave the bloody shirt and remind people that Republicans had, had been on the right side, but the Democrats had been on the wrong side during the war. Some of them had even wanted there to be peace 
and mm-hmm. and and we're we're not supporting our dear soldiers. So the uh, well, you give an example of someone who instead of waving the bloody shirt, kept waving the Confederate flag. Uh, uh, John Haps, uh, yes. who, who yes. he, he flew a flag most of his life, but not his whole life. That's right. Um, John Haps was, uh, was born in Holland, and he was one of the foreign-born Iowa Confederates. Um, he came to Iowa when he was uh, about nine years old, and um, he left for the South, during the financial panic of 1857, needing a job. He was a newspaper man. He joined a, a unit and then um, switched to another unit, which was um, uh, Morgan's Kentucky Cavalry. And then he had a bunch of adventures during the war. Um, after the war, he moved to Missouri. He was running a newspaper. He married an Iowa gal. And uh, after his wife died... He moved down to a Confederate soldier's home um, in Mississippi at Beauvoir, one of Jefferson Davis's former residences. And at that point, he, he was there. He, was, he had a garden. He had a Confederate flag over his garden. And he was, um, by all accounts, he was pretty happy. Um, and he was, he was one of these unreconstructed rebels. David, we're out of time, unfortunately. I've got to cut you off. Oh, um, okay. Give us the last sentence on, on John Haps, if you would. Well, when World War I broke out, he decided northern and southern boys are fighting on the same side. The war is over. From now on, I'm going to fly the United States flag. And he did. And it seems like a good place to end the story of Iowa Confederates in the Civil War. The book is by David Conan, who's been our guest tonight. David, thank you so much for being here on Civil War Talk Radio. Jerry, thank you so much. This was a pleasure. I appreciate it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.